Good morning. Let's turn in God's Word, please, to the Gospel according to John, John chapter 12. John 12. John chapter 12. John 12 and verse 1. John 12 and verse 1. John 12, 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. We'll look into this chapter further, but... That will be enough to begin. Now we appreciate your prayers for our family. Many of you have been praying for us. We've had a busy summer and it continues to be busy. We leave after lunch here today to head up to Pine Bush Bible Camp in New York for a men's Bible study. Henry Sardinia and I will be leaving that, so please keep us in your prayers. And some have asked about Nadia. She has some further tests coming up in September uh, where they are going to induce dizziness and try and arrive at the source of the vertigo and other issues she's suffering. Now with me, I'm just naturally dizzy, but with Nadia, it takes a battery of experts to do this. So do please keep her in your prayers and the family as well. I was thinking about you that are about to start school, however. I talked to a few of the representative sampling of university students, and and there's probably other high school students among us I know too. And uh, the two university students I spoke with are starting class tomorrow. And so I hate to mention that on the weekend, you know, and have to bring up this last day of freedom when you might be planning to go out to campus and scope out where your classes are and meet up with a friend that you know from Montrose Retreat Center, you know who you are, or anything like that, you know. See, I also spy and find out stuff about people. So watch out, young people. Be careful, little feet, where you go, because the Lord knows, and sometimes Kaiser finds out too. But in thinking about going back to school, it really made me think about Daniel and his three friends and how we meet them in Daniel chapter 1 as they're going to school as well, Babylon University. And... It was really remarkable, if you remember the story of Daniel, how from their early teens, which is probably what they were at the beginning of the book of Daniel, 
They took a stand for God. That as it says of Daniel, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion from the king's table. So there was a decision made by faith that we're not going to be just like everybody else in Babylon. We are different because we know the Lord. That was their attitude. And that was not just their attitude as young students. It was their attitude in Daniel chapter 2 as they began their new jobs, and maybe somebody's in that situation this year, I don't know. Or as they went on in life and now got more senior in Daniel chapter 3, and they were called upon to bow down before the golden image, again, they would not be disloyal to their God. And right the way along, you can find Daniel still in his very senior years. And we have some of the senior generation with us, and we're so thankful for their wisdom and experience. And Daniel, even as a man who had to be at least in his 80s, if not his 90s, was still called upon to witness for the Lord God and to maintain his loyalty and was even threatened with the death of the den of lions. And I said to myself, now what was it about these people, about Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we also know them, what was it about them that was able to keep their focus on the Lord and that they would maintain their faith in the Lord through the years? And I said, surely it must have been the promises of who their God was in Scripture, that it was always to the Scripture they were looking at, that that whole mindset of keeping oneself holy for the Lord comes out of Scripture, out of Leviticus, for instance, among many other books of the Bible. Or what is it that tells us you cannot bow down to other gods and be disloyal to the true and living God? Again, it is Scripture where Exodus 20, for example, would tell us, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me, neither shalt thou make a graven image and bow down unto it. And, of course, God would go on to tell them to love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, as the Lord Jesus articulated it in the New Testament. And really, it's by looking at Scripture and having faith in what the Scriptures tell us about God that enabled them to stand. And I would argue that it's what enables us to stand. Because at whatever level you are, if you're a student, or if you're newly in the workforce, or if you're sort of in your middle years, let's say, or if you're in your senior years, or any kind of incremental uh, point on that timeline, whatever it is, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the thing you have to keep coming back to is the evidence of Scripture. We have to have faith, don't we? What is this that overcomes the world, First John 5 asks, but even our faith that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, it's interesting that the Gospel according to John, you thought I had flipped my lid, right? And I had the wrong notes, and I started out talking about Daniel after I've read John. No, that was all preamble, okay? Now we're back in John. And you remember that John tells us famously the thesis statement of his book at the end of chapter 20, when he said, Many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that are not written, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So 
the Lord Jesus gave us this Gospel of John, as well as the rest of the Scriptures, of course, to confirm our faith, to give us something to believe in. Because faith is not merely opinion. Faith is us trusting in something. It is knowledge coupled with conviction that says, based on what I know about the Lord, I put my trust in Him. My confidence rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what overcomes the world. Now, the Lord does not ask us to have blind faith. He does not just say, well, trust me and give no evidence that He is trustworthy. He calls us to faith And he is eminently faithful. That is to say, he's one you can put your faith in and you will never be disappointed. You trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will never let you down. And he will never be proven wrong. As he says, the scripture cannot be broken. Isn't that wonderful? That our faith, as the hymn writer said, looks up to thee, thou Lamb of Calvary. That we can say... My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. We look to the Lord, and we say the Lord can be trusted. We can have faith in Him, and we know He is who He claims He is, and we know He did what He would say He would do, because He's given us evidence. He's given us signs. Now, the Gospels are well aware of this, especially John that these miracles the Lord Jesus did had great evidentiary value, that they are evidence of the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his identity as the eternal Son of God, who was manifest in the flesh, God who came down to earth and became a human being, that he might reconcile us to God, that he might become the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, as First Timothy 2.5 would put it for us. The Lord Jesus has done this, and John, all the way along, picks out things from his ministry and says, see, this is how you can tell this is really the Christ. This is the anointed one. One who is prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah that God has always promised to send. The one who will deliver us from our greatest problem, which is sin. The one who will take away from us alienation and separation from God. The one who will eventually not only come to put this world right and to judge the evil that is rampant in the world, but the one who will come and bring a better world, one that is a new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And that is the Lord Jesus. But we start at a table in John 12. Now, we started at a table this morning, too. We started this morning remembering the Lord Jesus in the way that he has asked. And we have signs on that table, don't we? We have bread and we have a cup. And that speaks of certain historical realities. It is not some sort of metaphorical thing. You know, like you can go to an art museum and you see there a bottle on a table, an empty bottle, or a Campbell's soup can on a lithograph or something, you know, a silk screen. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, Andy Warhol would say, well, this is Pittsburgh's own, Andy Warhol would say. A little Pennsylvania pride there, but you know. Anyway, Western PA, which is a different animal, but never mind. We, they're in the Commonwealth. We accept them. Um, 
Andy Warhol would say, see, this is all about American consumerism. This is all about buying and selling. This is all about the material stuff and the almighty dollar. And, and that's what it has come to in our world when he was putting out these famous silk screens of Campbell's soup cans in the 1960s. So you see something, and there's all these weird kind of esoteric ideas that the artist has. And sometimes you go in a museum and you see these just a couple lines or a couple of what looks like scribbles on the canvas, and now you're going to have to go look up what the artist meant because you can look at it and you have no clue. But we look at the bread, and it's pretty simple what it means. The Lord, who is the bread of life himself, who gives his body to be life for people that he's left this symbol the bread isn't his body of course it's just a symbol that the Lord Jesus came and in his humanity in his manhood would lay down his body in death and sacrifice and give himself for us and there's sort of a secondary sense where all of us partaking of that bread, all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say, well, we're part of one body, the body of Christ. Because he gave his body in sacrifice, we're part of that body, and we're all feeding on the same source. We're feeding on Christ. And then there was the cup, and the Lord said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many. Now, the many in Old Testament prophecy especially, one thinks of Isaiah 53, for example. This is just a way of talking about the myriads and myriads, the multitudes upon multitudes of people that Messiah would save through his death. What Revelation says, people from every kindred, every tribe, and every tongue. And the Lord Jesus says, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. Now, when a covenant was made in Scripture, there was a sacrifice associated with it. Blood was shed. Take, for example, the Mosaic or Sinai covenant. Exodus 24, they sprinkled blood on the document. That's the way of signing on the dotted line, if you will. God is saying, this is secured by sacrifice. That's how serious this matter is. And when we talk about the new covenant, which was originally spoken in Jeremiah 31.31, but other passages in Jeremiah will speak of it, later Ezekiel and later other portions of Scripture as well, it has different promises. Now, it was originally made with Israel and Judah. And it will still be made with them in the future because the wonderful thing of God is that his gifts and promises are without repentance. In other words, God doesn't rescind his gospel midway through. God says, I'm going to save Israel. Israel's going to be my people. They're going to know me. And does God say, well, I know I said that a long time ago, you know, thousands of years ago in the days of Jeremiah, uh, but uh, I'm not going to do it, because after all, look at how wily Israel was. They really don't deserve it. Well, it was never on the grounds of their desert, was it? It was never about merit. It was never about human beings being worthy of it or earning it, any more than it's about the church deserving it. Because if our salvation rests upon our faithfulness and how good we are and how much we deserve God's salvation, the church won't be saved either. We would never make it. But Romans 9, 10, and 11 makes this great point 
that God still has this plan. Even though it seemed very small in Paul's day, it seemed like most Israelites were rejecting the idea of Jesus of Nazareth being Messiah. There were still Israelites who did believe. He was one of them. He could say, I also am an Israelite. And he could talk about the future in Romans 11, when out of Zion shall come forth a deliverer, and so all Israel shall be saved. That day will come when Israel will be united to the Lord in the New Covenant. But the wonderful thing that the Lord told us in the Gospels, and that's alluded to in 2 Corinthians, when Paul calls himself a minister of the New Covenant, and when Hebrews refers again to this New Covenant in chapters 8 and 10, I believe, that the Lord tells us these blessings have also been extended to the church. And when we take that cup, we are speaking of the fact that the Lord has given that new covenant to people in the church as well. Now, what does that mean? Now, the new covenant had four basic provisos. Proviso number one, I will write on their minds and hearts my law. You know, in the Old Testament, they had the law written on stone tablets, didn't they? But we have the wonderful blessing that if we know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And what does he do to us? Well, I have it on good authority. There are a few IT professionals in our midst. So I will say it this way. He gives us a new operating system. Okay? You talk about an upgrade. (laughs) Well, the principles that begin to actuate how we think what we desire, what we want to do and be, and what we don't want to do and don't want to be, have now changed. And anybody I've ever met that has been saved for more than 15 minutes, they realize, I'm different now. I care about things that I didn't used to care about. I used to go weeks on end and not go to church and not care about that. Now if I have to miss it, I miss it. I really feel the lack. Now if I don't get to spend time with the Word of my Bible, I miss that. I wasn't accustomed to pray unless I was in an imminent plane crash or something. But now that I know the Lord Jesus, they might say, I miss when I don't get time talking to Him in prayer and taking Him my burdens. You see, we have a different kind of life source within us now. We have different motivations. And as we read God's Word and as we get to know the Lord, we want to do things His way more and more. We want to say, not I, but Christ. That's really how the believer rolls, if you will. So he writes on our minds and hearts His law. And that is a lifelong process till He takes us home to glory, of course. But then it also says, they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. So salvation is about a personal knowledge with the Lord. In other words, when you go back to Genesis 5, let's say, and you read about Enoch, who walked with God, that is not something unusual for a believer. That's not atypical Christian behavior. A believer knows the Lord. The Lord Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. John 17, 3. So, if you... Say, I'm a Christian, but you don't know the Lord. That belies your claim. Because to become a Christian, one must know the Lord. To have eternal life, one must know the Lord. But he also says, I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. 
Isn't that a wonderful thing that as much as we might be thankful for our Carolina heritage or our Pennsylvania German heritage or Scots-Irish heritage or African-American heritage or Puerto Rican heritage or Asian heritage of some description, I could be here all day just, you know, naming different tribes, right? But whatever we are, according to our natural descendancy, we say, I'm part of the people of God because of what the Lord Jesus has done, because of the new covenant that He's made with me. I'm one of His people. I once did not believe, but now I believe. I once was not a people, but now I'm a people. First Peter 2, quoting Hosea, will bring this out as well. And then, of course, that part that we hear may be quoted more than any other part of the new covenant, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Now, God doesn't forget stuff. Okay, God doesn't have any trouble with the heavenly cephalic index or with his memory. There is no dotage coming upon the Almighty. But God is speaking in legal terms. I'm never going to bring up those sins against you anymore because they have been removed. He says in the Old Testament, as far as the east is from the west where the prophet Micah talks about them being buried in the deepest sea. And I like Corey Ten Boom's paraphrase where she said, he puts up a sign, no fishing. Yeah, they're not going to be brought up again. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Some days when I think back to dumb, sinful things I've done and said, and think, why did I ever do that? I can go to the Lord and say, praise the Lord. The Lord died for that. The Lord put that away by the shedding of His blood. The Lord will never bring that up. Two million years from now in glory. He'll never say, Do you remember that really big blunder you made in 2023? No, the Lord will never bring it up. Well, we're at election season, aren't we? And all I'll say about that is that these candidates get thoroughly checked out and vetted by the people that want them to run. And they try to find out any kind of thing in their past that could be brought up and used against them. And so often, they miss something. And I wonder sometimes, some of these candidates, you know, maybe they've even forgotten it, but when something is brought up, they think, oh, they found that out. I remember back when I was in high school, all of our teachers loved to lord this over us. Uh, someone was running for president. I don't even remember who, actually. And they went back and found out he had plagiarized on a paper in college. And they said, you know, how could this man be president of the United States? Obviously, he doesn't have very much integrity. Well, those were the glorious days in the 80s, okay? The 90s kind of put that to bed. I mean, you could cheat on your taxes, cheat on your wife, cheat on all kinds of things, and still get elected. We've proven that, unfortunately. It's a sign of the moral declension in the Western world, not just in the United States, but we could name every other country that I'm aware of in the Western Hemisphere. And we could say that this is a sin problem that human beings have. But believers in Christ, in the new covenant, the Lord's never again going to bring up our sin, never again going to mention it against us, only perhaps to say about sin, that's how much I love you, my son died to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Isn't that wonderful to think of this morning if you're a believer in Christ? Well, we come to that table and we remember who the Lord is and what he has done. And at this table, there was a remarkable picture of what happens with believers. You have Martha serving there. 
in chapter 12, verse 2. And it's a great privilege to serve the Lord. You know, you get a little picture in Mark 1 when the Lord comes to Peter's house and his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, that is, is sick with a fever. Very serious condition in the ancient world. Probably could have been terminal. And the Lord raises her up and she begins to serve the Lord. And this is the wonderful thing. We say, I'm saved to serve. I love to do things for the Lord. And whatever... Uh, your background, the Lord, once He saves you, He wants to use you in service. And He's given you certain abilities. Some of them you had naturally. God put them in you as your Creator. And some of them He gives you supernaturally as His Holy Spirit gives them to you what we call spiritual gifts. And so it's a wonderful thing to serve Him. But notice Lazarus, her brother in verse 2, he was one of those who sat at table with Him. Now that's also something very lovely because that speaks of communion with the Lord, fellowship with the Lord. You know that if you are a believer, the Lord wants to spend time with you. He wants you to talk to Him. He wants you to get in His Word and learn about Him and hear His voice in the Holy Scriptures. He wants you just to be with Him, spend time with Him. This is something that my father used to stress in our home. In his relationship, even with my mother, my mother would be very busy. She'd be doing many things. He'd be there after supper. And he'd say, I just want you to come in and sit with us. Because, you know, she'd be cleaning up this or cleaning up that. And he hadn't seen her all day. And he'd say, I just want you to come and sit down with us. And it's so important to spend time together. People that are married realize that. Friends realize that, don't you? That friendships are strengthened as we spend time together. Well, it's the same with the Lord. And here Lazarus was sitting with him at table. And then we have Mary, who took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard. Now, as you know, there are various Marys in the New Testament. This is Mary of Bethany. She's Martha and Lazarus' sister. And she takes this very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Now, some of the Gospels put this right alongside the account of people plotting to put the Lord Jesus to death. For instance, in Matthew 26, and Mark would do the same thing. You get it here in John in that at the end of chapter 11, there is this plot to kill the Lord Jesus that Caiaphas says as far back as verse 49, being high priest that year, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together and one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. And the last verse of the chapter tells us, Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. The chief priests were Sadducees. The Pharisees were the opposing party. But they were united on this. We've got to get rid of Jesus. And when Caiaphas spoke here, he said, You don't know that it's expedient that one man die for the people. He was speaking in political terms. He was speaking in terms of keeping his own position. Because if there's a big ruckus and we have people following this man as if he's a political messiah, 
It could be that it'll be like that fellow that led uh, some men out into the desert and perished. Or it'll be like Theudas who led up a rebellion. Gamaliel references these different rebellions from the time of our Lord in the book of Acts. Chapter 5, I believe it is. But in any case, the point being, Caiaphas says, we've got to get rid of him for the good of the nation and for our good. And yet, really, being high priest, he unwittingly prophesied that the Lord Jesus' death would be substitutionary. That it would be on behalf of the people. So spiritually speaking, that's the broken clock principle. You know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. I'm going back to the analog. You have to go back to clocks that, like the one on the back wall that's not my friend, that has arms on it. You know, the little hand and the big hand. Not the digital clock. But when you have a clock like that one back there on the wall, if it's broken, well, two times a day it's going to give you the right time, right? You might have to hang around. If it says 3 o'clock, you'll have to wait till the afternoon and till early, early in the morning. But that's how it goes. Same thing with Caiaphas. He doesn't know he's speaking the truth. And the Lord is kind of making this a double entendre. He's giving two significances to the word. Well, you've got a political, dare we say, venial kind of concept of this statement. But I am taking it and elevating it to something else. The Lord is going to die for the nation. And not just for that nation, but for all people. So, what Mary does is against the backdrop of people that have decided, we don't want Jesus around. We want to get rid of him. We want to kill him. Now, why do they decide that? They decide that because he has raised Lazarus from the dead. By the way, Mary, if, if Martha is picturing service here, and Lazarus is picturing communion, Mary has to picture for us worship or adoration. So this is the lovely thing God wants us to do, to speak of his son, to revel in his excellencies, and to be uh, taken up and enraptured with his beauty. And that's what Mary was doing. But of course, there were those here, it says, verse 9, a great many of the Jews knew he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now what are they doing? They are coming to look at a sign. We've heard that the Lord Jesus has raised someone from the dead. We want to know if he's true. So we're going to come and we're going to look at the evidence. What's the evidence? Well, it's quite simple, right? If you hear that Lazarus died, that he's been in the tomb for four days, and then Jesus of Nazareth comes and says, Lazarus, come forth. And the man rises from the dead. If he's resuscitated back to life, at that juncture in time, that's clearly a supernatural work. That is a sign. And if Lazarus is walking around, living and breathing, you can come and verify that. Are you Lazarus of Bethany? Why, yes, I am. And did you really die? Well, actually, I did. You know, I got sick, and eventually I died. And Jesus didn't come and heal me before I died. I was dead and buried for four days before the Lord Jesus showed up. But then the Lord Jesus spoke my name, and I came forth. And one day, he's going to do that on the global level. Praise be to his name. We sang about it in our last hymn of the Lord's Supper this morning about lifting our wishful longing eyes toward heaven. Now, because of this, notice verse 10. But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, 
many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Now, what would you think of that? You know, that people say, well, prove you're the Messiah. And the Lord Jesus does signs. He's been doing signs all the way along through his ministry. And finally, he raises someone from the dead. So if they can't deny that the Lord has raised somebody from the dead, what do they do? Let's kill him. Let's get rid of the evidence. You ever wonder why it's open season on Christians in the world today? Why in Manipur, in India right now, there have been, just in the last few months, hundreds of Christians that have been murdered and brutal assaults on men, women, and children, just awful things that we wouldn't speak of publicly. And that's just one area. There are other places where that sort of thing is happening, and it's, it's happening all over the world. And we look around, and we can see the attitude around us changing. That whereas there was some respect previously in our culture toward church or toward the Bible or even toward certain Christians, those days seem to be passing. And we shouldn't be surprised, this was the milieu that New Testament Christianity was born in. That the early church had to navigate in a society which was not at all Christianized. It was not Christendom. There were not cultural and historical references to the gospel. And so uh, they had to really start from scratch preaching Christ and Him crucified to those who were pagan. And that's what we need to do in many cases today too. But isn't it fascinating that these people who would have demanded evidence and as priests, they were supposed to be observant toward signs. For instance, if a leper were cleansed, he had to go and present himself to the priest and offer the right sacrifice. And they would say, well, how were you cleansed? How did God do this for you? Can you imagine if the leper said, Jesus of Nazareth did it? I came to him and said, Rabbi, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And the Lord said, I am willing. He touched me and said, I'm willing. And he wasn't defiled. He didn't contract leprosy. Rather, he spread purity to me. I was cleansed. What a testimony that would be. Imagine if they said, let's hack off the head of the leper, you know, so nobody finds out. And that would be awful, wouldn't it? If you find out somebody, and you see these kind of conspiracy theories once in a while on the, on the web or wherever, uh, if you find out someone had a cure for cancer, and then you found out that that person had this cure and somebody else said, no, we rather like selling all our medicines and we like having our hospitals that treat people with cancer, so we're going to kill the person that has the cure for cancer. What would you call that? You'd say, that's a crime against humanity. That's an awful thing. If somebody could save lives and yet they take away that thing that can save life. And the Lord Jesus said this about the scribes and Pharisees of his day, that they took away the keys to enter into the kingdom from the people, and they didn't enter in themselves, and they hindered those who were entering in. That's why our Lord reserved his sternest comments for those who presented false gospels and tried to turn away people from Christ. Now, the people en masse seem like they're coming around to Jesus' way. When he comes up to Jerusalem, they say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. We read that in verse 13. But then after that, look at what it says here in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, 
Then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now, please notice that. You know, a lot of people have the idea, well, of course Christianity is not true. There were these 12 men, and they wanted Jesus to be the Messiah. They really wanted to believe that he was somebody special, and perhaps he was a great rabbi, a great teacher, maybe even did some wonders or some miracles or something. But, you know, when he died, they didn't want to believe that it ended, so they made up this story about him rising again from the dead, and then they went back and they retrofitted his life to the scripture and said, see, he was Messiah. No, that's not how it happened at all. Because they, at the time, had no clue what was going on. And it's only after the Lord Jesus is delivered up to be crucified, and after he's risen again from the dead, and they've become eyewitnesses of that, that then they go back and look in the scriptures and they say, huh, it was there all the time. The scripture said in Psalm 16, for example, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You're not going to leave him in Sheol. You're not going to leave him in the grave. He's going to rise again, in other words. And they look back on all these prophecies, Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9 and Micah 5.2, where he was born, Bethlehem Ephrata is the good pr- pronunciation of a Pennsylvanian, and uh, Isaiah 7, that he would be born of a virgin, and Isaiah 9.6, that unto us a child would be born and a son would be given, and then he would give his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked out the beard, and his hands and his feet would be pierced, and on and on and on, all the things the Lord Jesus did. It's only after, when they looked at the scripture, that they said, yes, Jesus has fulfilled these things. That's evidence. We can see he was true because we look at the works he did and then we go back to prophetic scripture hundreds and in some cases thousands of years before the time of the Lord Jesus and we see him fulfilling them. Well, more people were coming up. Certain Greeks, verse 20 says, which seems to indicate Greek-speaking Jews, people from the diaspora. And they came up saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And so they bring him to the Lord Jesus. Now, it's a good question. Now, when people say, I want to know the truth, or I want to know about God, I want to know about Jesus, what is it that they're really looking for? Are you looking for somebody to be your buddy? You know, maybe the celestial genie in the bottle. That when I have a bill that is excessive, I can rub the lamp and say, oh, genie in the bottle, please pay my bill, you know? Or when I'm feeling depressed... I can look to the genie in the bottle and he can tell me some nice platitudes and I can be made happy. Or he can make my business thrive. Or he can help me with body odor. Or he can give me more friends. Or he can uh, give me a good husband or wife, as the case may be. Or whatever. People want all kinds of things from God, don't they? But look at what the Lord Jesus starts to talk about in verse 23, right after this. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Now the Lord Jesus says, you're interested in seeing me, are you? 
Well, that is going to entail death. First of all, my death. In order to produce the kind of fruit that I am bringing forth to God, I'm going to have to die. Just like you can have a seed in your burpee packet that you ordered from the catalog, and it does you no good until you remove it, and you put it in the soil and add water and let sunshine and nature take its course, right? And that seed, which seems to be dead and buried, eventually sprouts and brings forth life. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who was slain on the cross of Calvary, appeared like that was the end of him. In fact, from the standpoint of the world, that was the end of him. They think he he's a non-sequitur. He doesn't follow today. He doesn't signify. They don't care what the Lord Jesus thinks because they think he's dead and buried and gone. But he's not, is he? He rose again, the first fruit, says the Bible, from the dead. And, to use another biblical phrase, the firstborn of many brethren. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord is bringing many sons to glory. But he would have to die in order to do it. And if you want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what you have to do as well. Die to this life. Die to this world. Say, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. I'm not living for here, for now, for this world as it is, as the highest good, the summum bonum. I'm not living so I can have my best life now. I'm living for the world to come when God will be all in all. When the Lord Jesus will be exalted at the right hand of God in glory. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father, and I'm getting a jump on it. I'm dying to the things of this world now that I might live unto God, that I might praise Him, that I might acclaim Him as Lord. Now, as people were following after Him, the Lord began telling them more. My time is gone, so I'll just point you to a few verses. Look at verse 35. A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And this is how the Gospel of John began in John 1, that he is the light that lightens every man who comes into the world. So this is what the Lord does. He shines the light. But there has to be a response. We have to receive that light. We have to believe on the Lord Jesus. And that's for a limited time only. Notice what he says in verse 44. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. We could paraphrase that. I'm not judging him right now. I'm not bringing him his sentence right now and and punishing this person at this moment. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, Just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Now, earlier, this chapter tells us that the Lord Jesus did so many miracles and that they did not believe on him. Uh, We see that 
earlier. I'm looking for the verse right now. Sorry. Just had it and lost it. It says... Yes, okay. So, nevertheless, even among the rulers, this is verse 42, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And, and I'll add to that verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, that's really the one that I wanted, they did not believe in him. So, it's all coming back to evidence, isn't it? That the Lord says... Here are the signs. Here's my word. My word's actually the Father's word. And he'll say elsewhere that the signs he does are the signs the Father has given him. John chapter 5, for example. My Father worketh hitherto and I work. John 5, 17. Here's the evidence. Believe it. And he's going to say it again to the disciples in John 14. Look at my works. If you can't believe me for my word's sake, look at my works. Go back to the evidence. You'll go back out to the world tomorrow, whether that means going to the office, whether that means going to the campus, whether that means going to school, whether that means riding a bus or being in your neighborhood or wherever you are, and there are going to be people around you that deny the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ and do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do you do? Well, you've got to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And how do we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? We go back to the Word of God and we say, here's the evidence. Here's what the Lord Jesus did. Here's what the Lord Jesus said. And rather than disprove the evidence, or rather than contradict and do away with the words because He was patently wrong and He was evidently false, they weren't able to gainsay what he said. They couldn't contradict him. They couldn't repudiate his words. They couldn't explain away Lazarus, much less explain away the Lord Jesus Christ's own resurrection. So, brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful amount of evidence in this book to tell us that our God is the living God. And that however much our world may assault us, and we hear on a daily basis about how this world is everything, We say, no, it's not. The Lord is everything. And the world He's going to bring in, that's everything. And that's what I'm living for. I'm living in this world as part of that one. I'm on enemy territory. And I'm part of the underground. And I'm living this countercultural life. Isn't that cool? I mean, people, you know, think it's cool to be part of the counterculture. Well, the most countercultural thing you can be is a lover and believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love and believe in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me and rose again to prove it's true. May God bolster our faith. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus. We're thankful we don't have blind or empty faith. We don't follow vacuous promises. We certainly don't follow myths and cunningly devised fables. We follow and trust in a person, thy Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has shown us the Father and who has given us the Holy Spirit. And we pray for anyone, either here or hearing on recording, or maybe somebody the saints will talk to later today, that they would hear this word and they'd be convicted of their own sin and their need to trust the Savior for themselves. Thank you for every believer here, from the youngest to the oldest. Thank you for our common faith in the Lord, that we are family, we're children of God, and 
We're brothers and sisters, one of another. And this is all by doing it. It's glorious and marvelous, Father. And we just thank Thee for it. Thank You for the fellowship we're going to have over food. Give Thee thanks for the food Thou hast provided. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name, Amen. Amen.